Welcome to the Porch Roof Classic, a retro baseball podcast novel in 15 or so episodes by Jeff Pullman. Episode 7 On my day off from the deli, I was out mowing lawns. Thunderclouds gathered mid-afternoon, so finished the chasen's yard in record time, then swung by the seagulls to see if they were in need again. They weren't, but the Jaffe house across the street snagged my eye. A moving van sat in the drive, its rear door open, cartons, lamps, and pieces of furniture inside. I stood there with my mower, stunned at how fast the house was sold, then kicked myself for not calling the realtor guy about its yard work. A black man in a t-shirt and jeans stepped out the house's front door and headed for the truck. I walked over. Excuse me, hi. Think the people moving in could use some lawn mowing? I don't charge much. The guy had a warm face and great smile. He chuckled under his breath and shook his head. I don't think we do yet, but thanks. Went to the back of the truck and grabbed a small crate of record albums. Two sweaty guys in brown overalls with matching gloves then exited the house. The real movers. Oh, I uttered, red-faced. I'm sorry. Don't be, said the man. I'm Bill Perkins, and it's nice to meet you. A real short black kid, maybe a couple years younger than me in a Philadelphia Sixers t-shirt, appeared on the side of the house. He had a big plastic comb stuck in his little afro. This is Michael, though he likes to be called Bertie. Hi, Bertie, I said. I'm Joey. Bertie grinned and gave me a sweaty handshake. Hi. You want to look for anthills in the backyard? Um, I can't right now. I got to mow lawns. But maybe some other time. We're right down the street on Squaw Farm Road. Okay. Nice to meet you, Joey, said his dad and walked in the house with the record crate. I turned, headed for my mower, turned again to give Bertie a little wave, and he waved back. As far as I knew, not many black people had ever lived in Marsh Meadow, at least ones who were not in servants' quarters two centuries earlier. It was no surprise the Perkins had chosen our South Marsh neighborhood as a testing ground, though. Deep in our Hebraic souls, many of us were only barely convinced we belonged here. Robbie was having a tough week. He got a bee sting on his thumb while trying to pick a flower in the woods across the street for Mom's upcoming birthday. One of his favorite Saturday morning shows was abruptly canceled. And when he asked for grated cheese at a local pizza place one night, they accidentally gave him garlic salt, and he covered his six-inch pie with it and took a large bite. When Dad suddenly made his dinner-time entrance waving a cream-colored envelope, Robbie was sure it contained an awful report card from school. Instead, Dad gave us an ear-to-ear grin. That time of year, buddies! Mel Klein called me today. Mel Klein? A sweeter name to hear than Maria if you're talking West Side Story. Two words that were the key, or better yet, the official travel papers to baseball heaven, and I had never even met the guy. Yeah, Mel Klein, I shouted. Robbie hadn't visited baseball heaven yet, and had no idea who or what we were talking about. And it just so happens, continued Dad, reaching into the envelope, that he found himself with spare tickets to this Saturday's game at Fenway against the Brewers. He pulled out three Red Sox tickets, and Robbie screamed, not out of fear for once, but pure, grade-A, explosive joy. He leaped into the air so fast and high that his pants fell down again, pulled them back up, then danced around the dining table a few times, alternating between a twist, a cha-cha, and a 1950s strut. 
Rico, woo, yes, woo, hoo, Andrews, yee, hee, hee. Rico, woo, yes, woo, hoo, Andrews, yee, hee, hee. He had his grandstand ducat in hand and kissed it over and over while he danced. Calm down, Robbie, Jesus. Mom squeezed my arm lovingly, all choked up. Look, he's dancing. The blight construction bulldozer was more merciless than the steam shovel. I stood on the sidewalk across the street with Izzy and Jean and watched in horror as it flattened the final portion of the former left field wall, the side of the wiffle grounds where we had carved dugouts out of the cliff. Sons of bastards, said Jean. Creepy Nazi dorks, said Izzy. We ready, men? I asked, like something out of a bad war movie. In unison, we threw our plastic bats over our shoulders, raised our heads and spirits back up, and marched back four blocks to the grand opening of Porch Roof Park. Can I be up first? cried Robbie the moment we arrived. The game at Fenway was a week away, but he was still a glowing little energy ball. Get picked for a team first, said Izzy, mussing Robbie's hair. Works better that way. It was a perfect afternoon. A light breeze out of the southwest tickled our scalps, promised to give the weakest pop fly a slight boost. The morning before, I dug into the earth with our biggest shovel to start excavating the stump of Phil's tree, but after watching me struggle from the dining room window for a good fifteen minutes, Dad finally gave in and called Roy the Root Man straight from the Yellow Pages. Roy showed up two hours late with his little John Deere and put gouges in the side lawn on his way to the back for more money than Dad wanted to pay. Now there was a circle of loose dirt where the tree once was, just behind the shortstop hole, and the distance to the home-run porch from the orange home-plate frisbee we secured into the ground in the southwest corner of the yard was deliciously close. Scotty showed up on time for a change, instantly knocked out by the chummy dimensions, and we picked sides for our first game. Izzy, Robbie, Scotty, versus me, Jean. As expected, it was a slugfest. I wouldn't even call it a home run derby, more of a home run Vegas review. Ball after ball soared onto the porch roof, at least half of them birthed as pop flies. Robbie didn't hit one because he swung harder every time up and practically screwed himself into the ground, but Izzy and Scotty made up for that. It was 16 to 9 them after two innings and 34 to 19 them by the sixth, when we called the game to eat my mom's corned beef and Swiss sandwiches and bowls of state line potato chips on the porch. Izzy sided up to me at the table. Hey, sorry about Melanie Court being on that root beer date when you were away. Felt like I had to tell you. That's okay. There were lots of other fish in the sea there, or the lake. All Jewish girls? Pretty much. If I had met someone, I wouldn't have cared if she was a Martian. You want all your chips? I slid my bowl over. Thankful he had changed the subject. I hadn't told Mom or Dad or Izzy about Helen yet, and sure wasn't about to tell Jean. She was my private friend for the time being, despite a chance I would never see her again. Our second game that day featured Jean Izzy versus me, Scotty, because Robbie had the start of a cold and went in the house. The score was even more ridiculous, Scotty at one point hitting homers in six straight at-bats, and it was so much fun we played five extra innings because we felt like it. Me and Scotty won 40-37 to 37 before the players went home for dinner and came back for a new sunset game with the same teams, seeing it still wasn't getting dark till around 8.30. Robbie slipped back out for the finale, in his bat pajamas and bathrobe with a small towel drenched in Vicks VapoRub stuffed around his neck. He coached third base like a nut, waving everyone home on every hit in between sneezes. You could have scored on that, Scotty. You're running like a hippo. 
Scotty would have told Robbie to shut up if he wasn't so winded from taking two extra bases on a hard grounder that skipped off Izzy's face. The orange sun finally ducked behind a cloud bank after five nutty innings, and the Gene Izzy's beat us 20-19. to 19. We were so exhausted we could barely eat our drumsticks afterwards, and the humidity had them dripping ice cream over our fingers before long. We called it a night. Mom finally realized Robbie was back outside and chewed his ear off as he went to bed, and then the telephone rang. It's for you, Joey, said Dad from his TV chair. Oh, God, Officer Schmidt again? Or someone from that freaky Collier Street Association? I was afraid to pick up the phone. Joey, pick it up! Do you know who it is? How should I know? I grimaced and hurried downstairs to the basement extension, waited for my dad to hang up. Hello? Are we alone? Huh? Who's this? It's Helen. Oh, hi. I dropped on the couch, relieved and excited. How'd you get my phone number? Never underestimate the power of the telephone book. You're the only Tosh in town. All right. Um, are you in Newton? Would you believe South Hadley? Like a half hour north of you. You're kidding. What? Don't ask. Aunt Phyllis got herself a nurse job here and packed us up in like three days. Wow. Yeah. And listen, sorry I didn't say bye to you at Muckle Lake. Took me a few days before I realized you were trying to actually stop Operation Panties. No problem. It's just, it's just nice to hear your voice again. Yours too. I could almost feel the phone line baking. So what you been doing? She asked. Oh, the usual. Mowing a few lawns. And I got a job. No kidding. Landscape designer? Ha, <laughs> No. Just helping out a local deli. Dumb stuff, but it's money. Most money is for dumb stuff. I'd rather not get paid and do worthwhile stuff. Like go to the Leave Nam rally in Cambridge this weekend. Want to come? Me? Uh, I don't think so. Have to work. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Too radical a thing for you right now. Actually, wait, is it on Saturday the 18th? Yeah, like 8 in the morning. Bunch of us are meeting on the Mass Avenue Bridge. Oh, that I definitely can't. My dad's driving us to a Red Sox game that day. Serious? Maybe we can meet up afterwards. Well, my dad likes to get us home, and my little brother will be with us. I'd like to meet him. Is he like you? Um, not really. What time's the game over? Oh, nobody ever knows that. Baseball doesn't have a clock like the other sports. Great, so I'll just cruise over to the baseball park and hang out. Is there a landmark or something we can meet at? Oh, man, she was making this so tantalizing and impossible. Okay, yeah, there's a bar on a corner I've seen before called the Cask and Flagon. Perfect. See you outside it. She hung up. Suddenly, for the first time ever, I found myself thinking about what I would wear on a Saturday. The Massachusetts Turnpike, which we called the Mass Pike, was the eastern climax of Route 90 that began in Seattle, ran through Montana and a sliver of Wyoming before zooming through South Dakota, Wisconsin, Chicago, Ohio, and across New York State to Albany. For me, the pike had no real purpose except being the 90-mile route that led to Fenway Park. The entrance ramp and toll booth we used for entry, like all its other ones, was marked by a green pilgrim's hat with an arrow going through it. I tend to think that logo has since been replaced in these more aware times, but in 1970 it was a pure beacon of joy. When do we get there? yelped Robbie the moment my dad grabbed the turnpike ticket at the booth. Soon as you stop asking, he said, 
Robbie had a Red Sox t-shirt on over striped shorts, wore his soiled Navy Red Sox cap, and continually pounded a little Louis Aparicio signed mitt on his left hand. I had decided on non-baseball apparel, a yellow Beatles shirt with a late 60s photo of them wearing narrow jackets, and my cleanest jeans. Can we stop at Howard Johnson's? I asked Dad from the back seat. A little early for lunch. It was a beautiful morning, and we'd gotten a 9.30 a.m. start. How about on the way home? Wicked. Yeah, wicked, said Robbie. Dad played a Springfield oldies station for us until it got crackly, then found a Boston channel with more modern rock songs. He didn't care for the stuff, preferring jazzier old man music, but kept it on for our benefit. He dropped the volume a notch and turned his head. Peters is pitching against some guy on Milwaukee named Lou Krause. Is he any good? Not sure, actually, I said. Hold on, said Robbie, and flipped through a stack of baseball cards he yanked out of his shorts pocket. It was basically every Boston and Milwaukee card he owned. Got him, says here. Used to be on the A's. Won 10 games for Oakland in 68 and only 7 for them last year with a 4.44 ERA. We ought to kick his ass. Peace of My Heart by Janis Joplin came on just then, and I asked Dad to turn the radio back up. The song made me think about Helen immediately, and Robbie's next two lines about Gary Peters went in and out of my ears. The Mass Pike came to an end at Starro Drive, a narrow nightmare only two lanes wide that ran along the Charles River into the back bay section. First, we had to pay our turnpike toll at the exit booth, and Dad didn't hesitate to banter with the toll collector and embarrass the crap out of us. This the way to the ball game? he asked. What's that, pal? asked the half-deaf, fully disinterested toll booth man. Oh, God, he's going to ask it again, I said, and ducked below seat level. I said, how do we get to Fenway Park? There was a long pause. Straight and then a right. Come on, there's cars behind you. Dad huffed and pulled away, a bit red-faced. I rose back up and gripped the rear seat alongside Robbie for the next ten minutes while local lunatics swerved back and forth in front of us. Turnoff's up here somewhere, Dad said, and scratched a sideburn. He'd been on that same road with me four other times and always seemed to forget where the exit ramp was. Right there, I yelled, and he cut in front of a VW bug that blasted its horn at him, took the exit at 40 miles an hour, and nearly pitched our Pontiac sideways. Even after we resumed breathing, we could hear the VW's horn still honking at us until it faded around the next starro curve. Is that the park? asked Robbie, pointing to a whiskey billboard on top of an approaching brick apartment building. No, Robbie, look for the big Sitco sign. The Fens was a lush, lake-filled park occupying a large swath of the Back Bay section, bordering Northeastern University. Izzy told me there was a plaque on some sidewalk around there marking the location of the Huntington Avenue grounds, one of the first places the Red Sox ever called home, but I had yet to see it. With Dad spending the next 20 minutes circling the fence in a futile search for a free parking space, I wouldn't be seeing it this time either. All the streets leading up from Kenmore Square were clogged with fans heading to the game, and Dad was out of options. After a series of false parking space alarms, he finally broke down and handed a $5 bill to a questionable attendant around the corner from the main Fenway entrance on Jersey Street. The guy directed us into a space more fit for a horse and buggy. There was no room to open the right side door, so me and Robbie had to climb over the front seat and steering wheel and squeeze out the driver's side with Dad's help. Suddenly I was thinking about impossible it might be for Helen to even get near the park, let alone find me outside it. We crossed the street to the ancient yard. 
From the outside, it looked more like a tool factory than anything, wedged into a misshapen block, and the only thing that gave it away was the Fenway Park lettering chiseled into the top of the thing behind a tree, and the separate flags for the Red Sox and Brewers hanging over the main gate. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, was how Robbie greeted his first look, a welcome relief from his sing-song nails-on-a-blackboard chant on ticket-receiving night, and we worked our way inside. The lower bowl of the park was a claustrophobic jungle of concrete ramps, overhead girders, and fragrant, greasy food stands. It seemed impossible there was an actual ballpark in there. We stayed right behind Dad like hungry ducklings, wove through the hordes of fans, and suddenly squeezed up another ramp with daylight leaking down from the top. The first glimpse of Fenway's green ball field, monstrous wall and left, topped with giant nets you might see at a driving range, the famous Sitgo sign beyond, and giant bleacher sections in center and right already flooded with humanity always gave me chills. Robbie was so excited he was speechless for once, and made some kind of weird babbling sound with his mouth as we moved toward our third base seats. The grandstand perch was just past third base, two rows behind a congested walkway. A big guy in a sleeveless undershirt with a hairy back sat right in front of Robbie, but had his young daughter with him, so Dad switched with my brother to give him a better view. One thing about Fenway you noticed right away was how close the seats were to the field, especially ones around home plate. In fact, watching a game on TV from the center field camera, the fans seated behind home always remained motionless like they were in a wax museum, eyes glued to the action because the closeness demanded it. Yip, yip! Yaz is hitting third. Dad had brought each of us 75-cent programs that included pre-printed scorecards with lineups in the fold. Robbie already had his little pencil poised over the top of the first inning column, even though the game was still 15 minutes away. Andrew Smith, Petroselli, and Tony Canigliero, sort of recovered from his horrible 1967 beaning, were also playing. While the only Milwaukee player I was concerned about was leadoff speedster Tommy Harper, who was leading the league in stolen bags. My fears about Harper were justified when he singled to left to begin the game. He waited until two were out to steal second on Peters, but Danny Walton whiffed to leave him there. You guys hungry? asked Dad. Popcorn and cotton candy, chirped Robbie. Those are for later, he said, and waved over a vendor carrying a steamy metal tub of Fenway Franks. Dick Schofield, our third baseman neighbor, whose son with the same name would later play for the Angels, flied out, but then switch-hitting Reggie Smith stood in from the left side, waggled his bat, and golfed a Lou Cross fastball into the center field bleachers. A big league home run witnessed live is nothing like seeing one on television. On TV, the pitcher delivers the ball, and the ball leaves the bat, and then the fielder races back to the fence and usually gives up. Smith's ball that day was launched into the sky on a wondrous parabola, and as we watched it fly for what seemed forever to a distant land, we could see an outfielder or two in our peripheral vision run to intersect it, and we didn't even know it was a home run until it dropped back to earth and out of reach. Robbie's rise from his seat and leap into the sky when it cleared the fence was perfectly synced with the ball's journey. The rest of us stood, cheered, and applauded. Robbie screamed with delight for a good fifteen seconds. Milwaukee calmed Robbie down the very next inning, tying the game on a double, Peter's wild pitch, and RBI single into left by someone named Ted Kubiak. The afternoon stayed scoreless for the next three innings, giving us ample time to stuff our guts with every kind of ballpark food imaginable. Dad drank a few Narragansett drafts for lunch and added some French fries, and I knew he was a little too in love with his job because he inspected the apparel of every woman fan who came down our aisle. 
Leather jacket in this weather? You're kidding me. I got a poop and I'm all itchy, was Robbie's statement around the top of the fifth. Okay, said Dad. Joey will take you to the bathroom. I will? Yeah, you will. Can you score what I missed, Dad? Robbie dropped the open scorecard in his lap. It's easy. Dad picked it up, raised his sunglasses, and squinted at Robbie's pint-sized scrawls. I took my brother's hand and ducked down the grandstand tunnel with him. The trick after finding the actual men's room was entering an available stall that wasn't ghastly. There was a long trough for guys to piss and drop their cigarette butts in, but it was a healing mineral spring compared to what lurked behind the five private doors. Ew! cried Abby as he entered the first open one. Just shut your eyes and go. But I might miss. If you miss, you miss. Everybody else did. Swelling applause and a roaring cheer echoed down from above the sinks as I helped him wash his hands. Oh, no, he said. He scrubbed fiercely with a dollop of oozing yellow soap. I noticed a few bug bites on one of his wrists and pointed to them. Those are what's itchy? Uh-huh. There's a few on my legs, too. Come on, we're missing stuff. Dad was shelling peanuts from a jumbo bag of them when we returned to our seats. The scorecard had spilled off his lap onto the dank cement, and there were shells all over it. Crap, said Robbie, scooped it back up to frantically check it. You didn't score the top of the fifth, Dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never done this before, so didn't want to mess the thing up. But I can tell you Milwaukee didn't score. The game moved briskly, which was good, because the last thing I wanted was extra innings and Hellion waiting forever outside the park. Peters, the pitcher, doubled with one out. Schofield singled up the middle. We had the lead again, and Robbie bounced in his seat like a tennis ball. Then Reggie Smith singled, and error by their center fielder, Ted Savage, put another aboard, and up to the plate walked Carl Yastrzemski. The hero of New England had walked and whiffed so far, and the park was electrified. Because Robbie wasn't a baseball fan yet in 1967, it was hard for him to understand how much Yaz meant to the region, how he had personally reversed the sad, pennant-starved fortunes of the franchise, where the September performance would be seemingly disgusting for eternity. In the midst of a crazy four-team pig pile with the Twins, Tigers, and White Sox, he collected huge hit after huge hit and won the Triple Crown on top of securing us a berth in the World Series. He had made himself a dangerous hitter after six ordinary years in the majors with discipline and hard work, and his skyward raised hands from the left side of the plate were the only thing about him that wasn't quiet and unassuming. We want a hit! We want a hit! The signature kid chant you could hear on every local broadcast echoed through the ballpark. Robbie stood and opted for, Kill it, wet Yazzo! And kill it, Yazzo did. Cracked a line shot that rose into deep right field and disappeared into the Milwaukee bullpen despite a leap from Hirschberger. Robbie screamed so loud I thought I'd go deaf. He jumped up down on his wooden seat, slapped my hand every time he dropped. Even Dad beamed, though hardly jumped. We now had a 5-1 to lead, but half an inning later, Peters began to get hit. Singles by McNertney and Kubiak, both plated runs. Robbie got quiet and nervous. Two more singles to begin their seventh sent Peters to the showery netherworld and brought on a questionable relief man named Vicente Romo. The Red Sox used him often, but he tended to give up hits, and this game would prove no exception. After escaping the seventh, two one-out doubles made it 5-4, to and our best closing man, Sparky Lyle, took over. Unplug him, Sparky, I wittily yelled, and Robbie let out a nervous giggle. Lyle got the first brewer he faced, 
But then our nemesis, Tommy Harper, launched one high and deep into the monster's nets. No! screamed Robbie, buried his face in his hands, and pounded the seat in front of him with his little fist, until the young girl seated there whirled around with a nasty stare. Yep, we were behind just like that. It isn't fair, said Robbie. He was actually crying. The world's just a bunch of potholes, buddy, said my dad. You gotta grow bigger tires to get through it. Robbie poked me. What's he talking about? I don't have tires. The seat on his other side was empty, and I slid around him to give us some distance from Dad. Listen, Robbie, can I tell you why baseball's the best? Because it's so much the way real life is. A good thing happens, and then a bad thing. Sometimes a bunch of good things, and then a crap load of bad things. And that's why they play 162 games every season, right? To give everyone enough time, I mean fans and players, to deal with all these things. And the teams that can figure them out and make little changes end up doing better and maybe winning the pennant. Yeah, but Peters is a booger face. I know. And in four or five days, he'll pitch again, and maybe he won't be. See? Haven't you ever had a real bad day, and then you wake up the next morning, and the sun's out, and you go, hey, what do you know? I'm still here. That's baseball all the time. The league champion Orioles last year, how many times do you think they lost? 53. Oh, okay, you knew that. Meaning they learned how to handle that losing so good that they won... I computed the answer in my head 109 times. So that's why you don't mind that Danny guy beating you up? Well, I actually do still mind that. And in case you forgot, he didn't beat me up. Yeah, you were a pukey butt, he chuckled. Right, a pukey butt. You done with that cotton candy yet? He nodded, and I helped peel and wipe the stickiness off his hands. Some kind of commotion over there. I looked up. Dad had gotten to his feet and with some other fans was fixated on a section of the grandstand down the left field line. An usher and two security guards were busy escorting a young, dark-haired woman toward an exit tunnel. Oh, cripes. It was Helen. I, um, have to go to the bathroom, I chirped. You okay? Yeah, I just gotta go. Take your brother, please. Why? He already went. I gotta go again. I mumbled a curse, then took his arm and squeezed out of the aisle with him. We got down the nearest tunnel, back into the teeming hordes, but it was impossible to see Helen or her captors in any direction. We paid the men's room an obligatory revisit, where neither of us really had to go, before we returned to our seats. You've been listening to The Porch Roof Classic by Jeff Pullman. This retro baseball podcast novel was made possible by Spotify for Podcasters and Buzzsprout. Be sure to basket catch another episode next week. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to contribute, go to buymeacoffee.com slash jpolman54v. Thanks.